and welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcy. Our guest today is the comedian, actor, writer, podcaster, entertainer, Hannibal Burris. Welcome to the podcast, man. What's up, Dan? How's it going? I'm good, man. I'm good. We are recording this right now in the thick of this scary, unpredictable virus. How are you holding up with all this, man? I'm good, man. I'm good. It's weird, but now we're in, this has been two weeks since I've been in quarantine or just in lockdown or whatever. I haven't really been interacting. So the second week, it weirdly, for me, got a little bit normal or the new normal for where it was just, okay, I guess we're doing this. When last week, it was more like going to bed, like, is it going to be this tomorrow again? And this week is like, oh, well, this is what it is right now. So I've been getting a lot of NBA 2K in, man. Nice, nice. Yeah, NBA 2K, you can really lose yourself in the game. And I've been getting the game for years, but only played certain modes. So I've dove in for real now. I'll play it for like six to eight hours straight, work on my character and just lose myself in that. But it definitely is a is a wild time that everybody's experiencing with work being canceled and it's all across the board. It's super unique and it's something we haven't experienced before. I hear that. Who's your 2K team? My 2K team to play against people with? Yeah. I've been using the Clippers. Okay. Yeah, man. Kawhi's defense on there, just him being around somebody. He don't even got to contest the shot. He make them miss the shot. But, yeah, the Clippers defense is pretty tough on there. I played a couple games with the Bulls. Zach Levine, if he gets hot, he can go off pretty crazy. And then on my player, my player is on the Warriors. He's a small forward. And the, the thinking is that I want to just, you know, play in a good system around some shooters. And then after my rookie contract, I'll go elsewhere in free agency. <laughs> <laughs> so you load up with the talented squad, you find the role, and then you can get the big contract and move elsewhere? Yeah, that's the move. It's just, you know, I got Clay, I got Steph there to, as the shooters. I'm a slasher. They open up the floor for me. And then, you know, I get to get inflated stats. And then when it's time for my deal, I'll get that max and bounce out. <laughs> like that Harrison Barnes move. Yeah, yeah man. <laughs> exactly. I know, though, on a more serious note, this virus has definitely impacted you. I mean, you had a festival that you had planned. I'm sure that you had tours and your shows. How has this been impacting you from a business perspective? I didn't have many dates on the road. I was planning on adding some. So I was going to be premiering my special, Miami Nights, at South by Southwest. And then that got pushed. So South by Southwest got canceled. But then at this point, the virus wasn't super crazy yet. So there was a group of us then and some other organizers with South by Southwest that we were like, oh, we can still go down there and do something. And so I wasn't doing my official premiere, but I was going to do a show. Oh, yeah. But then things escalated even more because it was that point where each day it got crazier. Right. Each day it would get wilder. It was a weird week then because when South by got canceled, there was still a whole bunch of question marks like, okay, where is this going? Are we for sure? But it was that same day when... 
Rudy Gobert on the Utah Jazz got corona. Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson got corona and the NBA suspended. That's when it was like, whoa, like at least for me, that's when I felt like things went up to another level. Yeah, when the NBA got suspended, because, yeah, that news kind of came back to back to back over the course of two hours. Yeah, Tom Hanks, Rudy Gobert, NBA's canceled. Like, what? Oh, man, this is insane. Yeah, so those dates got pulled, had a college show. I mean, I didn't have much on the road. You know, some people have full tours, 20, 30 dates that they had to move. So it definitely... uh has changed things a lot because now you're like, okay, what do I, if I'm not able to go to the road right now, then what's the move? And so you're seeing a lot of people being creative with live streaming and and building a lot of other content, but it's definitely an interesting time and it's still, it's still developing. It's still new and it's no real playbook for it besides, you know, make a move, try to be creative and, and see what works. Yeah, I'm still not sure that we all know how this is going to play out, how this is going to shake up, but it is good to see more of these live streams. It's good to see some of these more creative ideas. Has anything sparked for you, like new things that you're thinking of doing during this time? Well, a couple things. I got this Moog synthesizer, and I want to score somebody's short film. It makes these wild noises. It's a really dope machine, and a lot of great music like now that i have that machine when i listen to certain songs i can hear like, oh they got a mug on here so i want to score people's movies or score some short films so just have a contest or just have people email say hey send me your short 10 minutes max and then i'll score it just because because like hey sitting around i'll score a movie why not right right just having fun with it another thing i've been wanting to do I'm an investor in Patreon. I invested in the last round of Patreon last year. And so I've been planning on doing something on the platform anyways. I hadn't figured it out. And this kind of accelerated. Where It was like, okay, well, now that we got some time, we should get that Patreon offering ready. So Patreon, you know, people are patrons and they can subscribe to an artist. So say, you know, for example, Open Mike Eagle is a friend of mine. He's on there, and so he'll have exclusive content and special songs or different videos for his patrons, and they pay $5 or $10 per month. And so I'll be doing something on there in the coming weeks. Nice. Now, that makes a lot of sense. I read some stat earlier this week that they've had 30,000 new subscribers in the past month, and that set a record. And I think a lot of it's tied into what's going on right now. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, when people can't work the road, that's a lot of trickle down. So if they can't work the road, then their crew or their staff, and it's a lot of people that are dependent on that income. Really, and that's where it comes from with me, is where it's like, okay. I'm taking a hit, but I could sustain. But to to actually keep paying staff and keep staff on, I got to make a different move. And it's really fascinating to see just how big business handles this, where like multi-billion dollar companies are immediately, oh, we're doing layoffs like right away. Like, Damn, <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing layoffs? I got, I got less than 10 employees and I'm scrambling 
trying to figure out moves to keep everything going. And Bloomberg, $40 billion ass, is, is <laughs> people off immediately. Like, what? You can't take the hit, dog? I'm taking a hit. Right, right. Same with the airlines, right? Like, threatening the government with the layoffs if they don't get their bailout money. Like, damn. I mean, airlines, I get their position a little bit. The airlines are running on pretty tight margins mm-hmm. anyways, so they can't really sustain this type of it's pretty necessary so i get the airlines they weren't super profitable anyway but when you talk about these billion like individuals that are in that range it's kind of wild to see but you know everybody handles situations differently we all get to learn a lot during this time and you know because everybody's experiencing the same thing but we all come into it in a different way and and so you get to see how people react it's gonna be it's fascinating now and it's gonna be fascinating to look back on in a a couple years yeah tell me a little bit more about your investing so you put some money into patreon that definitely looks like it's paying off well what are some of the other companies that you've invested in or what are the type of opportunities that you usually look for i was just looking for different opportunities since i got in entertainment and i was always i was just interested in making different moves and keeping things exciting for myself after I made the standard kind of real estate investments and uh, stocks and the regular profit sharing conservative investments I was like okay I want to make some other moves I went to Afrotech actually uh, a couple years ago oh nice I wanted to be in a different environment because at that point I've been to Lots of music festivals, comedy festivals, lots of entertainment things. And I was following Blavity and I saw some stuff about Afrotech come up. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to go check that out this year. And that was my first introduction to the world and saw some pitch competitions. And I met Candace Matthews, who at the time was running the Hillman Accelerator in Ohio. And she helped me out with just learning about companies and how to do diligence on companies and research and just learning about term sheets and walking through the process. Yeah, so started just going to conferences. It was always a nice experience just to, even if I didn't invest in a company at that conference, just being in the environment and hearing how people thought about their companies and just the structure, it really helped me with how I wanted to approach things on the entertainment side. My first investment was this company, Bonte. Bonte does Lux hair and makeup concierge service for black women. So the founders are Maude, Okra, and Simone. And so yeah, I met them at this Angel Capital Association conference in Boston. And then invested in Patreon, invested in Pax Vaporizers, We invested in Red Bay Coffee in Oakland. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Black-owned coffee company. What else do we have? We have a few others. But yeah, it's exciting, man. It's a long game. And it's an interesting time now with those companies because then it makes you look at, okay, some of these companies have to really shift in this time. Some of these companies 
can thrive more in these times. One of the companies actually is Odoc. It's a telemedicine company in India. Oh, good timing for that. Yeah. So that one is doing well. Envoy is a delivery company in Canada. So there's some that are primed for this time and there's some that they have to kind of shift approach and make different moves. But I get to learn from all of them and it's been a real cool part of my development. Yeah, it's been an exciting time for that. It's great to see more celebrities and those folks getting involved in this game because there's a good opportunity to be able to make an impact. And hearing you name the companies you're naming, it's clear that diversity is a focus in trying to elevate that. So, no, it's dope. Yeah, like I said, it's helped me because when you know somebody, uh, when their company's new, they've really plotted it out. And a lot of times in a detailed way, oh, this is what we're doing. This is what we plan on doing. And this is how we're going to do this. And and so it motivates me to have a more clear, defined vision and just think about how I go with operations and trying to get things going on this side. So it's been really exciting. I know sometimes when people hit up celebrity investors, they don't just want the money, they want the promo or they want the sponsorship and some upcoming thing. Is that also part of what you include in your deals? If it makes sense, you know, and if we can figure out a way to do it in a way that's natural and that doesn't feel forced, then yeah. So there's Ethel's Club. In New York, in Brooklyn, Ethel's Club is a social club for people of color. So that kind of fits. It's like, you know, and they have an event space. So that just kind of is a natural fit. Hey, I want to be doing a show here. So when it makes sense and it is not jarring, then it works out. But in like ODOC's case, we're doing telemedicine in India. They don't really need it for me. On the promo front, that doesn't work. Hey, hey, Hannibal Burris, uh, if you're in India, <laughs> get your... Like, <laughs> so if it makes sense and there's a way to do it in a smooth way, then we can do it. For instance, one way I figured out was with Red Bay Coffee. I had this video that I did in Miami where, you know, those when it's an iPad and you sign with your finger? Yeah. I just kept on signing at this one place and you can just make it look crazy and just fill up the screen and make it look like chaos. And so I just took that video at this place in Miami and then I thought about it when I was in the Bay. I just acted like I I just tagged Red Bay. I was like, here's how I sign when I'm at Red Bay. Even though that video was from a place in Miami. It's like, this is me. (laughs) That was just kind of a slick way to do it without plugging them like, hey, check out Red Bay Coffee. So um, try to, if we can, do it in, in ways like that, that is promoting them, but it's also organic and clever. Right. It's natural. It makes sense. The one that always sticks out to me that someone going over the top is when Rick Ross had that Wingstop drink at Pusha T's wedding. I'm just like, come on, bro. Oh, he had a Wingstop, a Wingstop cup. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. He was holding the Wingstop cup in the wedding photo. Oh, hey, man, that just shows how much equity he has in, in Wingstop. <laughs> <laughs> the, the equity, how many 
stores he now owns. Yeah, I mean, he, he's he has out a of lot. Yeah, he, you know, if he's like, hey, I know I'm going to be photographed here. He did some rough numbers in his head on what it meant to have that Wingstop cup. Hey, you know. Also, that's kind of funny. <laughs> and it's on brand, too. Yeah, to a Wingstop cup at a wedding is, is funny. It's a conversation piece. True, true. So you got your investing, you got your touring and your specials that you're doing. In many ways, your model reminds me a lot of the hip hop artists themselves who are multi-hyphenates involved in all these different things. And in my work, I have a pretty good idea of where they prioritize their time, where they try to make most of their money and how they balance it all. I'm curious, what is that like for you? If you had to have the ideal balance for how you would plan your year and which things you would spend more time on, whether it's movies, TV shows, on tour, so on, what do you think that would look like? I can't really call it, honestly, just because this year and last year were very different in the sense that I have this new spot in L.A. I live and work. It's a production facility, but I live at it. So I got, you know, studios here and, you know, I can shoot, record. And this is the first year where I've brought on full staff, full time designer, editor and a couple other folks. And so a lot of my time was being spent just building this and we were prepping for the release of my special and stuff leading up to that. And so because of that, I wasn't taking as many tour dates because I was like, oh, I want to work on making sure everybody this is a new team. I want to be here on the ground, working with everybody and kind of building up. So when we do drop the special and we got to be on the road, then everything can kind of be in place. But the time management and just figuring out how to allocate, that's a challenge when you're doing so many different things. Because I'm always wondering, okay, should I narrow my focus? Am I doing this poorly? Is this falling off while I'm working on this too much? So that's one thing I'm just constantly trying to improve and grow at is just having systems and checking in on stuff and figuring out what's important. That's a long way of saying I'm working on my rap career too, man. I've been in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's real though. That's real. That's real. <laughs> I mean, we already got the mixtape. Now you just need the albums to come out. Yeah. But yeah, it is a thing of, you know, what's going on in that moment. Is it a tour date? Is it a bunch of tour dates? Are we doing press? It just varies so much. And actually, this was the first year that I was really trying to kind of slate out the entire year. Before, I had certain stuff going on, but I would take stuff as it goes and be kind of flexible. But this year, I was kind of like, okay, in February, we got All-Star Weekend and this. March, we got South by Southwest. In April, we're going to do a 420 event. May, we got Isola Fest. June, we'll figure out something to do in Chicago. July, August, we're going to go to the Olympics, maybe film some stuff there, do some shows in Tokyo. September, we'll do another Isola Fest. October, a Halloween. It was the first year I plotted out, and then that got thrown in the trash. <laughs> <laughs> I know, hearing you run through it, it was like me getting excited, but then the reality hits and it's like, damn, like, 
most of that stuff is not going to happen, at least this year, postponed. Well, not canceled completely, but postponed. Yeah, it's not happening in that flow. It's not happening at all. Right. I think even that transition, though, of you spending at least the last year or two being able to plan it out and start with your own team, that feels like a shift that wasn't necessarily there years back. And I think it highlights a lot of the ownership and people being able to manage and take control of their brands and not necessarily relying fully on the distributors or other partnerships in order to make that happen. Yeah. And it's just, I like to just work at my speed. And I mean, obviously if you, you know, when you partner with different distributors, eventually you can have your deliverable dates or whatever, but it's nice to just kind of work in your zone. Hey, I want to produce this show. And also helping other friends of mine with their web content and producing also. Yeah, it's an exciting time, man. And it's just really, you know, planting a lot of seeds and making sure they water. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Isola Fest. So this is a festival that you recently started. You announced it on pretty short notice, and it was something that was a bit less traditional in that most festivals take place somewhere that's easy to access, some big major market. And you're like, no, I'm putting this in the middle of Mississippi. Yeah, but here's the thing. There's a lot of festivals in the middle of nowhere. They just big now, so they seem like they don't think. Coachella is the middle of nowhere. That's true. Bonnaroo, it's out in the country, but it's huge. But it started as a in a farm, and they probably had some trouble convincing people to come out to a farm on the first couple years. Right. But yeah, rural Mississippi is a strong choice. But it, that's where my family's from. My grandmother and mom was from there, and my cousin, I helped him with getting this venue down there, the Players Palace. So we bought this spot in Isola, and Isola, Mississippi, population 800, maybe. Small town. But with him getting a spot, I felt like just because the bar is in a small town, right? Within, you know, a 45-minute drive, there's a lot of people within that 45-to-hour radius and people drive that distance in Mississippi, no problem. So I felt like if the club was curated and booked prop, like we could create something really dope for that area. And it wouldn't be just, you know, limited to the local population. And initially I thought we want to book an open mic and do this and try to do it gradually. But then I said, you know what, I'm going to just do a show down there. So I like, I'm going to do a show. And I said, okay, I should try to make this show special and have a, a guest with me. I said, like, okay, who would come through? Who should I ask? I said, Let me ask somebody that's in the region. Like T-Pain is in Atlanta. And maybe he'll come through. I said, hey, man, you want to do a show in Isola, Mississippi? It's not going to be crazy money. Here's what I can offer you. I will owe you three favors. But, uh, and he said, yeah. He was the first person I called about it. He said, yeah. Nice. Now I'm hyped up. I'm like, you know what? Okay. He said, yeah, we're going to make it. It's a three-day festival now. Because <laughs> 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 I escalate stuff fast. Then I just got hyped, made it a three-day festival, started booking it. And I did it on a couple weeks' notice just because 
that was the only time I could pull off the idea without getting deep into winter. And I wanted to set it up to do it again in the new year. But yeah, doing a festival on a few weeks notice in rural Mississippi has its challenges. But people really were hyped, man, just because you can imagine nothing like that has ever happened in the town. So people were really excited and it was a beautiful time. It was one of my favorite moments of my career. That's awesome, man. I love it. And I think one of the things that sticks out is given that short notice, it honestly gave you an opportunity to be like, okay, this is the first thing we're putting out there. We're not going to spend a year and a half trying to make this grand thing, knowing that we're going to want to make adjustments or whatever. Let's just put it out. Let's get the feedback. Let's get it early. And that's how so much succeeds in business when people are willing to put it out and know that they have the ability to do so and then seeing what happens. And honestly, even just hearing the plan, you said you already had two of them planned for 2020. So you weren't wasting any time. It was fun to do because I looked at it like it was pretty low risk, high reward. Now, yeah, the festival wasn't profitable on the first go. I spent money out of pocket, but it's festivals that are huge with the big headliners that they don't make money right now, like 10 years in. Coachella wasn't profitable that first year. Yeah. So I felt like it was low risk, high reward, where as long as nobody died, then I felt like it was going to be a win. <laughs> right, right. I mean, we say that jokingly, but seriously, because shit does happen. That's how I felt. As long as nobody died, this is going to be dope because nobody's done this type of event there in this spot. So it's going to be fun. Yeah, man. And it's just now I look at it, too. Uh, that block in Isola, there's a lot of other. Well, not a lot. There's like four other businesses or buildings that are just abandoned. And I really feel like Isola Fest can become the catalyst to getting some other businesses down there, a little cafe or restaurant or maybe a one screen movie theater down there and make it, you know, one of those nice little towns that people want to chill in. And it is not that expensive to get stuff there either, man. Like some of those buildings are for sale for like $9,000. Wow. Yeah. So, I feel like, you know, getting something there and it could really progress in the next year or so where that town is, is a dope spot. Were there any other festivals that you were looking to, whether it was for inspiration or insights on, yeah, I think that I saw a fest can be like this. So I want to take a little bit from that, but add my own flavor to it. Uh, I mean, I looked at a, a lot of stuff. You know, I've just been a part of a lot of festivals as a performer and as just a, a spectator. So I was just looking at videos about, like I looked up Coachella, the, the beginning of Coachella. And then I saw a few years back, they bought a couple hundred or maybe a couple thousand acres of land around the site. And then I said, oh, let me look at land around Isola. This is a couple of days before the festival. And I looked up and there was some acres around Isola, like a couple hundred acres for sale for less than $300,000. So that got me thinking, like, oh, man, maybe this could be something huge and 
if I got this land and really blew this shit up and got the right partners involved. So just seeing other people's stories and the origin stories of festivals, they all started somewhere. And with Isola being, it's a rural town in Mississippi, but it's hour and a half from Jackson. It's two and a half hours from Memphis. It's four hours from New Orleans. Like it's somewhere, you know, and like people can get there pretty easily. So I just see a lot of potential there if we do it right. No, for sure. I want to talk about comedy specials. You had mentioned it earlier that you were working on one, and I know you've done several of them in the past. I think for most people that tune in to them, they think that Netflix changed comedy and changed all of your businesses in a lot of ways just because of how much they were offering for specials. And then that, of course, may have a trickle effect on what the other streaming services are offering. Has that been your experience? Well, Netflix, Comedy Commissado went up in 2016. And that was just four years ago, but it was a completely different time in the comedy special business. Netflix didn't have nearly as many at that time. And I think they were still doing licensing deals, a lot of those too. Mine was an original, but I licensed uh, Hannibal Takes Edinburgh that was self-produced with Judd Apatow. They've definitely changed the game where, you know, it used to be HBO and HBO special was the holy grail. And it wasn't that many HBO specials. There would only be a few per year. Now Netflix is the spot. It's so Netflix is such the spot that HBO's Deaf Comedy Jam anniversary was on Netflix. Yeah. Where like, nah, this is Netflix too. <laughs> yeah, man, it's definitely changed the game. And for people whose specials have really hit on there, it's changed their life and just changed their touring life. Ali Wong. Her business went crazy after her Netflix special. So it's just really, you know, once you're up there, it can definitely change things for you and boost your ticket sales and boost your other projects in a different way. Does that shift the art of comedy in any way? Thinking about in the past where if everyone was mostly knowing that ticket revenue was going to be the big thing that they were chasing after and making sure that their jokes hit when they were performing for a live audience. And although most of these Netflix shows are taped in front of live audiences, I wonder though, is there anything that changes in terms of how you or your peers deliver jokes, knowing that the goal is to get this on Netflix, as opposed to the goal just being to get more tickets from fans? No, the only thing that I can point to creatively well, it might even be a creative. It's just more of a structural with the specials is that with Netflix up top, you want to hit them really hard because they see when people tune out of the special. So if people, even if people watch this, they get the data on how long people watch the special for. So you really want that first couple minutes. You don't really have that in this age of people having so many different options and different things vying for their attention. If they do check out your special, you want it to be fire right away or just something catching them right away, whether it's the subject matter, it's the visuals or 
you know, the joke, it's a quick joke or whatever, especially if you're not one of the top names. That's the thing. Hit them right away. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. That's because how consumption is now being measured through these streaming apps is so much more precise than it was before that, yeah, you really got to front load these jokes versus, I don't know, I even think about things like the original Kings of Comedy and how a lot of people felt like Bernie Mac sketch, for example, was the most memorable one, but they put that at the end. Maybe that would be put in the beginning if they were doing that now. That could be that where if it was now, it probably would. But I mean, I guess it varies too. Because now are people skipping out of stuff right away? Probably, too. Even in a quarantine time, somebody watches something and they don't like it. Like, no, I need something to help me through this. This Right, right. (laughs) They wanted to be popping right away. But, yeah, that's that you want to grab people immediately. So you'll see some people's stuff. Some people won't have, like, the longer intros anymore. It'll just start right on jokes a lot of the time. You'll see some no music. It'll just be like, ladies and gentlemen, da 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 da. And then, like, within the first 10 seconds of seeing a Netflix logo. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, that definitely is the shift for the folks at your level. There's also been a shift for the folks that are just starting out and how they're getting to get their notoriety and how they're getting their name out there. Because when you started, it was much more of a traditional path, right? You were in college, you started going to the local spots and then building up from there. But now I feel like whether it's making a good TikTok, getting known there, making a good Instagram account, what do you think it would look like if you were starting out now? How do you think you would go about it? My first tape that I was sending to bookers or if, when I was sending to try to get on TV. It was VHS tapes, man. Wow. Yeah, because I started performing in 2002. So it was still DVDs were around, but VHS was still pretty heavy. Damn. They haven't, take, they haven't taken over yet. For me now, I mean, it's so many different angles. There's a lot of different approaches that you can spend your time on. It's pretty fascinating. Because that's why I, a lot of comics, they ask me for advice. But I'll tell them, if you are doing some stand-up, if you're doing smaller shows or open mics, they need to be filming those and putting them online. Because even if you're playing for 20, 30 people, if it was killer... And you talking about something that's relevant or you, you know, you have some kind of great moment. If you put it online and you tag it the right way, then now it's going to a global audience. And so that's the big difference from when I started. I think YouTube started in 06 or so around then. I think my first YouTube clip I got up. 07 or 08, something like that. Having a good set on YouTube, that could definitely move tickets back then when it was fresh, just having some good YouTube videos. I still some old stuff on my, like promoting my first album. My name is Hannibal. You know, you'll see a lot of folks that capitalize on a moment or talk about something topical. But you don't even have to go to the comedy club. You just do straight to camera talking about something. And then if it's about a trending topic or the right person see it, they share it around. 
and you're getting a couple million views right away. And then, you know, you redirect them to other stuff and then you stay consistent and get it going. So I just think cats just need to have a solid digital strategy. You give yourself a good shot out here with minimal resources. It just takes hustling and wanting to do it. Yeah. I look at Kev on stage. I forget his real name, but I found him through people just sharing his Instagram clips and he's talking about current events or whatever's trending that somebody did stupid on Twitter. And now he's touring around the country and blowing up. Yeah, it's just he's funny. He's likable. He's consistent. And he talks about stuff that people are talking about. And so if you keep doing that, it just catches on. You don't need to necessarily be in Los Angeles or New York to pull that off. A lot of these people have built audiences in the millions without going to the coasts. And so that's the real difference, too, is that, you know, my big opportunities came about because I moved to New York in 2008. And because I was in New York, you know, I did shows with people that wrote on the late night shows. So I was able to just hand my DVD to somebody and then somebody got sick that was supposed to perform on late night with Jimmy Fallon. And then since they were sick, they called me up and then they sent the booker out with me to do some warm up sets. Like I did some sets that night to prep at the comedy club. And that, that's kind of funny, like how New York comedy club politics are. Like at that time, I wasn't being booked at places, but you can kind of go to the comedy club and if you say, hey, I'm doing Fallon tomorrow, can I get five minutes to work on? And they're like, okay, you're going to be on TV. You can work on your set. Ah, uh, nice. Yeah. And so I was able to get a couple sets, worked on it, and then did Fallon. And then folks from Saturday Night Live, Seth Meyers, they saw me on there, invited me to interview for Saturday Night Live the next week, and then I got a job right for Saturday Night Live. And so that's all just by being in New York and being in those circles because, you know, I could have been same talent level in Chicago doing shows with audiences, but those things wouldn't have happened. Right. It goes back to the hustle, being in the right location. Now, makes a lot of sense, man. Definitely does. All right, so we're getting to the tail end. Have one last question before we let you go. I have to ask, I saw the clip floating around. I think you reshared it from your comedy commissado sketch where you spoke about the toilet paper business and why you wanted to get in on this business. And as you know, there's probably no better time to be in the toilet paper business. Did you do it? I didn't. I didn't know how. I didn't dig that deep into it because that was a point, you know, I'll be having a lot of ideas and then sometimes you don't know. Now I got a team and so I'm able to kind of try to follow through on stuff and and really dig into something besides, you know, having a combo around. You know what would be really dope? We got into the toilet paper business and then your friend, yeah, yeah, and then you do nothing. What's funny about that, the rest of the joke is talking about how there's a clearer path to becoming president of the United States than there is to becoming a toilet paper mogul. (laughs) It's just just knowledge. I mean, I guess obviously the president is more of a public job, but it's not, you don't know, like you ask 
20 people. Like, How do you get into the toilet paper business? And, you know, Cameron, I don't know if he got into it. Oh, yeah. You saw the Cameron clip, right? I saw the Cameron clip. And that's so funny that he is really into the toilet paper business. You know, Cameron has the same birthday as me. Really? Like same year and everything? No, not same year. I think he's born 78 or 79. I'm born 83. Okay, yeah, no, that's not that. He's a little older than you. But, huh, born the same birthday, both trying to get in on the same business. I think there's something there, man. Yeah. Also, there's a little-known Cameron track. You ever heard of this track called IBS? No. Does it stand for what I think it stands for? It stands for Irritable Bowel Syndrome. <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. my goodness. <laughs> when you, you said spl- that, that's what I... Can that in? Can you splice that into the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I'll add it in at the end so people can hear it. Yeah, people don't know about this. This is underground camera. That's hilarious. Well, Udo's, maybe after this, one of my friends is a brand manager and he worked on Charmin at Procter & Gamble. So maybe we'll talk offline. Yeah. Okay, here's the other thing too about the toilet paper. Here's what I was wondering. Okay, people are buying toilet paper now. So the general consensus is that the business is booming, right? But... I feel like people are hoarding so and buying more than they need. And sure, they're at home with their family, so more is getting used, but they probably bought a lot. So I feel like there's going to be a level off as a result of this. You know what I mean? True. Like this is a boom, but will this boom maintain? And so how big is this boom? Because it's almost like the bigger the boom is, then it levels off even more, right? Right, yeah, because it's not like something that you're just going to access it and there's a peak and it goes back to normal. Like, it gets used and the fact that you have a stockpile now means you're not going to buy as much in the future. So that's a good point. But yeah, not all of the connect. You have to do the, what's the metrics on, you know, now you at the crib eating all the time with your kids where you would normally be at work using work toilet paper. So it's tough math, Dan. No, that's true. I mean, I don't know what it's been like for you, but being in this house a lot more, that means that, yeah, I'm eating a lot more of this food and then using this bathroom a lot more. So there's some factors here. There's some factors to consider. What's your day-to-day like? I mean, are you doing multiple podcasts a day? Are you writing articles, researching? What do you do? Yeah, so it's a mix. I normally do the podcast tail end of the week, so Thursdays or Friday afternoon, and then the beginning of the week is mostly for writing. But I'm normally at a co-working space downtown San Francisco, so now it's been my wife and I in our apartment. So it can definitely be a bit crammed. I think at some point she's probably like, wow, he needs to get out of here and hope that co-working space opens back up, but you know, making the, making the best of it. Yeah, man, it's, uh, that's one thing is uh, with folks with multiple kids in certain spots, I, I'm like, oh, this would be, that would be dicey. Right. And she's a nurse too. So, I mean, I feel bad for her with just everything going on right now. So the last thing I want to do is be an additional burden right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild out here. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you coming on. This was fun. Before we let you go, is there anything that you'd like to plug or let the Trapital audience know about? So, uh, yeah, just go to my socials and see what type of uh, quarantine content I'm putting out. 
check me out, HannibalBurris.com. And my special Miami Nights will be dropping soon in July. That's that. All right. Good stuff. Thanks, man. Appreciate you. Thanks, man. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell at least one friend about this podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. Go to Apple Podcasts, go to iTunes, leave a review, rate the podcast. I will screenshot and share the podcast ratings on Twitter and Instagram. That can encourage more people to share the podcast. And if this podcast is your first introduction to Trapital, then make sure you check out the rest of the content. Go to Trapital.co. That's T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L.co. Sign up for the weekly newsletter. Get all the content there. And also, shoot me a text. That's also a great way to stay in touch with Trapital content. You can text me, Dan Runcy, at 415-234-3074. Thanks again. See you next week.